This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, September 10th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Well, the military is meant to protect the homeland and win wars, but that's not the only goal that's been pushed on the military in recent years. James Hassan, a military vet who served in Afghanistan, has a new book out detailing the social justice agenda that was pushed on the military by the Obama administration. The book is based off of exclusive interviews with high-ranking military officials, and today James joins Kate for an exclusive interview. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now, onto our top news. There's been a significant decline in border crossers since May. Acting U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Mark Morgan tweeted Monday, During the month of August, CBP apprehended or deemed inadmissible a total of 64,006 people. For July, that number was 82,055. This represents a decline of approximately 22%. Moreover, the August number reflects a decline of 56% since the May peak, which was a staggering 144,255, end quote. And while Morgan said Mexico needed to do more, he did single out Mexico's cooperation as a factor in the success in a briefing at the White House. Here's what he had to say. The government of Mexico has taken meaningful and unprecedented steps to help curb the flow of illegal immigration to our border. And let's talk about a couple of numbers. Mexico has apprehended approximately 134,000 people uh, so far this calendar year. Last year, 2018 calendar year, the entire year of 2018, 83,000. That's a substantial increase of apprehension that the government of Mexico has executed. In addition, since June, Mexico has deployed deployed thousands of troops. They've created a new National Guard within their country. 10,000 troops to the southern border, 15,000 troops to the northern border uh, with the United States. Again, unprecedented support and cooperation. Well, almost all U.S. states have joined together to launch an antitrust probe into big tech companies, in particular Google. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton announced on Monday that 48 states, along with the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, had launched the probe, which will focus on Google's advertising business. Google has faced accusations of censorship as well as manipulating its search engine to direct users to its own products. Here's Paxton on Monday speaking outside the Supreme Court. And what we've all learned is that while many consumers believe that the Internet is free, certainly we know from Google's province of $117 billion that the Internet is not free. And this is a company that dominates all aspects of advertising on the Internet and searching on the Internet as they dominate the buyer side, the seller side, the auction side, and even the video side with YouTube. This investigation is is not a lawsuit. It is an investigation to determine the facts. And right now we're looking at at advertising, but the facts will lead to where the facts lead. Google has said that it will work constructively with state officials. The back and forth over President Trump's remark that Hurricane Dorian at one point threatened Alabama continues. The Associated Press reports that, quote, National Weather Service Director Louis Uccellini said forecasters in Birmingham did the right thing September 1st when they tried to combat public panic and rumors that Dorian posed a threat to Alabama. 
They did that with one thing in mind, public safety, said Ushalini, end quote. The National Weather Service of Birmingham tweeted September 1st, Alabama will not see any impacts from Dorian. We repeat, no impacts from Hurricane Dorian will be felt across Alabama. The system will remain too far east. Vladimir Putin's United Russia Party suffered a major setback on Monday in a citywide election in Moscow. United Russia won 25 out of the city's 45 seats. That's still a majority, but it's way down from 40 seats out of 45, which the party had previously held. That vote comes after a summer of controversy in Moscow, in which some of Putin's strongest critics were banned from the ballot. According to Politico, Vitaly Shklyarov, a political analyst who advised a small liberal party in the election, called it a massive achievement, adding that it's the first time that genuine opposition candidates had been elected to the city council since the early 1990s. Next up, we'll feature our interview with James Hassan, a military vet who discusses how he saw during the Obama years social engineering going on in the military. So, have you ever flipped on the TV and heard talking heads dropping terms like gross GDP or nuclear deterrence or single-payer health care and your head is just spinning and in a total muddle? Yeah, I am also there quite often, which is why I listen to Heritage Explains, It's a weekly podcast that explains all of the policy issues that we hear about in the news at a 101 level. The two hosts, Michelle and Tim, unpack the big policy issues in a conversation, and they bring in heritage policy experts for insight. They ask questions like, what's going on over in Ukraine? Why do we need something like a Space Force? Will we actually get those Social Security benefits that we're all signed up for? Heritage Explains gives you a 10 to 15 minute explainer that brings you up to speed with the biggest policy debates and gives you laughs along the way. You can find Heritage Explains on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your daily listens. And we put the full episodes on YouTube, if you're a YouTuber, so you can stream on your computer. So go and check out Heritage Explains and get on top of the issues. So joining us today is James Hassan, a military veteran and author of the new book, Stand Down, How Social Justice Warriors Are Sabotaging America's Military. James, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so first off, you're a veteran yourself. Yep. When did you join? Why did you decide to join? What branch? So I was an Army officer, and I did ROTC through Notre Dame, uh, the University of Notre Dame. So I commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army in 2011, and then uh, kind of rode that out through almost the end of Obama's second term. Um, and I come from a family with military uh, you know, background. My grandfather was a Marine Corps uh, lieutenant colonel. And I have five or six cousins right now on active duty across all four branches. So it's, uh, um, and all of my mom's brothers all serve. So it was kind of a, a tradition, at least in the, the last few generations. And I just wanted to get back and, and serve and, and kind of be the, the type of person that I saw my grandfather be. So, And were you deployed during those years? Yeah, or? yeah I went to Afghanistan, um, the Eastern Afghanistan, so it was, Coast Province and uh, Nangar Province, so they're kind of both in the uh, the AFPAC border area. They're very friendly over there, uh, not at all. <laughs> uh, um, but it was good, and uh, and uh, you know, I learned a lot. But one of the things that also hit me was while we were preparing to deploy, and um, you know, during my time uh, just across the military in general, is that we spent so much time doing things that had nothing to do with our actual job, whether it's, you know, you're, you're 
equal opportunity training or PowerPoint training on all kinds of different things. And, um, you know, now they had implicit bias training and, and, uh, you know, the first thing that you think about if you're a military leader, kind of whether in the army or, or anywhere else, when you step off the plane and your boots at the ground for the first time, you think, all right, are we ready for this? Did we do enough to prepare? Um, and, and you as a leader, especially feel that way. You think, did I do enough to make sure that my, uh, my soldiers are ready for what we're doing? And, uh, and time isn't fungible. So when you're spending all this time focusing on, uh, you know, these social justice demands, that's time that you can't even use doing what you really need to do. So I decided to write the book in part because the army that I joined during Obama's first term was nothing like the army that I left at, towards the end of the second. And I think the military in general is such an opaque institution from the outside sometimes that I think the American people are kind of in the dark a little bit about what all of these policy changes and cultural changes implemented by the progressive activists in the Obama administration are really doing. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that I found really interesting about your book. I mean, you have a number of, um, you know, on background interviews where you talk to military members and mm -hmm. you say, like, they're not comfortable talking to the media, which, you know, at the Daily Signal, we found that they're not supposed to. They don't right. want to dishonor the institution. Totally makes sense. Yeah. But, you know, I think for people like me who don't have a connection to the military, it's often like, well, what are they really thinking? Right. And I want to get to the meat of the book, but I'm curious, like, when you were doing stuff like this implicit bias training and all this other worse were soldiers sort of kvetching about this behind the scenes with oh, leadership? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, absolutely. And uh, it's, yeah, it's a morale killer in some ways, too, because you sign up to do a, a job and you know that you have a mission. And if you're going to go overseas, then, you know, you have a deadly serious mission. But then basically all of these other things, you know, kvetching is probably a good term. Uh, it just shows that the, the political appointees that are in charge of you don't take the mission as seriously as you do, or at the very least, uh, have a different idea what that mission is. Okay, so let's talk about the book. Sounds good. So you get into the political correctness that's infecting the military, and one of the examples that you put in Stand Down is generals told you the Obama administration was focused on identity politics. What did you mean by that? Well, they were focused more on accomplishing stated social goals versus simply focusing on the military's sole job, which is to fight and win wars. So I interviewed scores of sources for the book. And a number of them were you know, people like two or three star generals who were in the room when, when these decisions were being made. And what they would tell me is that we never got, you know, the, the, coming from the White House, the administration, we were never getting guidance about, you know, hey, we want to have this many brigades ready or like tell us your, your, the status of the troops. It was all simply focused on basically things like the, the transgender policy or uh, integrating, uh, creating gender neutral infantry units over the objections of the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So basically, uh, you know, to, to pull one quote, someone said, you know, we got a lot of direction about, you know, we got a lot of direction from the White House, but none of it had anything to do with warfighting. And I think that kind of sums it up. <laughs> Seems slightly problematic. Right. So you also talk in the book about how military academies are changing. Yeah. What's going on there? Well, so it's, uh, it's kind of a two- two-prong problem, and uh, they, they feed into each other. So one is we generally are having, you know, you have a progressive administration um, and that can force changes. And second, the academies now are increasingly run by civilian professors rather than military instructors. And that started during the Clinton administration, but it kind of really expanded during the Obama administration. Um, and, and I'll get to why that's problematic and how that plays out in a minute. Um, 
But just as an example, the West Point was two to three percent um, civilian professor in the early 90s. And now it's 25. And now one out of every three instructors of the Air Force Academy uh, are civilian instructors. Um, and that that plays out in really detrimental ways coming from, uh, you know, from all the interviews that I've spoken with. A lot of them are academy grads. And like I said, I wasn't, but I'm channeling their thoughts um, because the, the professors don't have the same background and they don't, um, by and large, a lot of them view it only as if, you know, students are students, as if they're teaching at any other university. Um, so to give an example from um, the Naval Academy, and I think um, this kind of feeds maybe away from the civilian professor thing and, and more into those cultural changes. But um, one of the things that I published in the book was uh, a number of pictures of safe space signs outside instructors' doors at the Naval Academy, both military and civilian. And uh, it's not all, but it's a it's a decent number. And among other things, they say that the uh, instructors have taken a course called Trans 101, which is a sensitivity course put on by contractors from Google. But that played out across all the academies. So West Point, for example, now has a uh, diversity and inclusion studies minor, and it's chaired by three uh, civilian professors who have stated that the goal of that minor is to be like the diversity and inclusion studies minors at um, their peer universities like Ivy Leagues. Uh, and uh, one of the one of the, the co-chairs um, was a West Point professor uh, of that minor conducted focus groups of West Point cadets about the Obama administration's transgender policy. And when a number of cadets, um, and in particular a number, a large number of female cadets, raised issues um, you know, regarding privacy because open bay showers um, or the implications of evaluating a biological male according to physical readiness standards for biological females, basically all of kind of the main reasons why this is an issue. Um, the the professor just concluded more education is needed for cisgender cadets to be uh, more quote gender cosmopolitan and uh, you know you don't send people to West Point to become more gender cosmopolitan you send them to West Point so they can prepare to lead soldiers and you also mentioned the book and I thought this was really fascinating because we're having such a huge fight over American history culturally right now that sure. even the history classes were affected is that right yeah so I you know I'd spoke with uh, professor. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Heffington, and he had, he had written a kind of a scathing open letter. Um, he was graduated West Point, and then he taught there for a while, and then he left. And he uh, he talked about how even kind of the history classes had been, um, you know, revamped. So there was a greater focus on, uh, you know, divisions between Americans, everything through the, the lens of gender and class and, and everything else. Um, and... You mentioned history, and one of the history professors at West Point um, was a, a man named Rashid Hussein, who uh, served as a mentor to Spencer Rapone, who's the infamous Kami cadet. And I was able to to get the backstory on on all of uh, how a guy who served in the 75th Ranger Regiment goes to West Point and eventually leaves West Point and avowed Marxist. You know, how does how did that happen? And yeah, that, that doesn't seem like what you're going right, for. Right, right. It's not, not what we're shooting for. And basically, Hossein was his, his uh, academic advisor, and he would say, well, my job is to kind of help him along his intellectual journey. So at one point he bragged to 
Rapone's uh, military advisor that, you know, quote, Spencer is experimenting with Marxism as if this was a great thing. And the military instructor reported it uh, kind of up the chain, but got crickets uh, in return. But that's, uh, you know, when you have instructors who are, only, you know, like to give you one more example, just because it's my favorite one, uh, another West Point civilian professor compared West Point to Hogwarts in this long uh, <laughs> uh, the Harry Potter, uh, you know, and said, well, students are students. They're not carrying wands. They carry, you know, guns, but it's pretty much the same thing. And it talked about learning about the cadets experience from them, which is really you're there to teach cadets. So that's uh, probably a long rambling answer of, no, of but- uh, you know, cultural issues that have seeped in the academies. And it's a big deal. Yeah, I would think it's a big deal because, I mean, again, not having any personal experience with this, but um I mean, if you're potentially putting your life at risk for your country, not that America's always been perfect, but sure. it seems like you might want to know about some of the good things America has done no and kidding, why it's right? worth yeah. fighting for. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not helping anybody by uh, creating safe space. You know, there are no safe spaces in Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to switch gears a little bit. Sure. Um, so the Obama administration, and you alluded to this, they made a huge change in the military by allowing transgender troops to serve openly. Mm-hmm. How did this come about, and did the military get an actual chance to weigh in before this change came about? So this was absolutely a push for the Obama administration, and particularly for some of the political appointees in their Department of Defense. So Eric Fanning was the the Secretary of the Army, and uh, Deborah James was the Secretary of the Air Force. And both of them, long before the Pentagon supposedly completed a study showing, hey, this is really not going to have a big or you know effect. They were already pushing for that change. So it was, um, and there are outside activist groups pushing for it. So it was definitely activist driven. Um, the Obama administration then created this you know, working group to study the issue and they commissioned a study through RAND. Um, but if you actually go and look at the RAND study that said, oh, this is only going to have a minimal impact on readiness, which is problematic in its own because we shouldn't do anything that has any bad impact on readiness. But they concluded, oh, it's only a minimal impact. The study was actually just conducted by, again, activists who had already knew the conclusion that they wanted, uh, including one of the members was somebody from the Obama National Security Council who left the Obama administration to then go to RAND, conduct a study telling the Obama administration that they can do what they wanted to do. Um, so that was... A Great when it works out like right? that. Right? I know, right? But... There, there are two main problems, and the first one is simply just a readiness issue. Um, according under the Obama administration's policy, you could uh, serve according to the physical fitness and body composition standards designed not not for your biological sex, but of the gender that you identify with. So the military has very specific physical fitness standards for males and females, just based on biological differences. Um, so if you're an 18-year-old male soldier with 21% body fat, you're considered a liability and you're non-deployable. If you're an 18-year-old female soldier with 21% body fat, you're fit for duty. But under the Obama administration's policy, you could be an 18-year-old soldier who is biologically male and has 21% body fat, but identifies as female and is then considered fit for duty when that soldier wouldn't be otherwise. So already you have this, you know, for the same reason that we don't have uh, you know, biological males competing in, in women's lip weightlifting. Um, I know heritage has been on kind of yeah. beating that drum quite a bit and for good reason. Um, and then, you know, obviously the second issue is that, you know, there are all of the privacy issues that are implicated and to pick a good example of, uh, 
want to summarize those. When the Obama administration was uh, explaining this policy after they announced it, so they, they held a meeting with a lot of chaplains at the Pentagon and the senior chaplains and uh, you know, briefed them on the policy. And afterwards, a, a Navy chaplain who was one of the most senior chaplains to the Marine Corps at the time, um, who was serving in the, in the Marine Corps Commandant's office, uh, approached the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, uh, Anthony Curta at the time, and said, you know, basically expressed concerns. And Curta replied, look, there will be mixed genitalia in our bathrooms, in our birthing units, in our showers, and it's good for America. And, uh, you know, this chaplain for the Marine Corps said, well, sir, do you really think it's going to make us better at fighting wars? And Curta just said, well, that's the way it is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration, to its credit, had actually found a, a good compromise in terms of you can be open about you know how you identify. You could be open about how you know who you are, and live however you want when you're not on duty. But when you're when you're on duty, when you're in uniform, you have to comply and and meet the standards designed for your biological sex. And you you got into this a little bit in the book, and I just found it really interesting. I think mm-hmm. with these transgender issues, one of the things we see discussed the most is like how much privacy are we talking? You know, obviously right. different bathrooms and different dressing rooms have different, you know, door sure. formations. But you were saying in the military, we're talking extremely close quarters. Oh, yeah, right? like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and it really depends on the facility. But you have some modern ones that you'll have maybe a little more privacy, but it depends on the facility. But I mean, they... Uh, a lot of times an open bay shower will resemble like a, a, a prison cell with six shower heads. I mean, you're, you are, you're crammed in so together no doors, pretty closely. No, uh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> okay. Um, so when you talk about, you know, having mixed, you know, genitalia and the different showers, like you're not talking about somebody using a stall and then walking away and, you know, somebody else coming in after them. You're talking about like very up close and personal at times. You also got into the Obama administration allowing women to fight in combat, uh, which was in 2015. And one of the things that I found was interesting that you got into was there was this Marine study that Mm -hmm. indicated putting women in combat was not quite the rosy reality that the Obama administration was saying it would be. What did that Marine study show and how did did the Obama administration just ignore it or what happened there? Sure. Um, Well, at the outset, I like I think that the term itself, even women in combat becomes as Orwellian phrasing, right? Because um, women have been fighting in war since Molly Pitcher. (laughs) And and, uh, so I don't think anyone is it was framed as if you had half of, you know, most of the military thought that women were somehow constitutionally incapable of being in combat, which Although, just isn't, isn't I mean, the I will case, say though. Molly Pitcher had to dress as a guy. Yeah. Uh, so. Okay. No, no, but that's, that's my whole point is that like there are female Apache pilots who kill jihadis with uh, 50 millimeter um, guns linked to their helmets. You know, like, so really the question is about there's 3% of the military and their infantry units that um, have to put, you know, up to hundred pounds on their back and walk 12 miles at a time. And then, you know, maybe you get in a firefight, when you get there. Um, and so when the Obama administration announced that it was going to change a policy, the Marines said, hey, just just give us a year. Let us do a study. Let us figure out whether this makes us more effective. If it does, we'll do it. If it doesn't, we don't want to do it because making us less effective puts our Marines in greater danger. So they did a, they went out to 29 Palms in California and they evaluated um, all male infantry squads versus uh, mixed gender infantry squads on an entire like, whole host of different metrics and um, 
you know, types of drills, everything. And everyone had heart rate monitors and they had uh, outside like data geeks, they called them the geek squad, just sat there and, and crunched all the data. And so what they found is that the all male squads outperformed um, the integrated, you know, the gender neutral squads, uh, you know, by a factor of at least 80% or 80% of the time. And one of the examples um, that I pulled from my books, they found that um, it took the, the gender neutral squads at times up to 180, 178% longer to pull an incapacitated Marine from uh, a vehicle. And if that vehicle's on fire, you know, then seconds mean the difference between life and death. So minutes, extra minutes can be deadly. Um, so they, they finished that and they presented it. And uh, Obama's secretary of the Navy at the time, Ray Mabus, just refused to even read it. Um, and then told the Marines that they uh, they'd simply chosen substandard female Marines to to cook the books in their experiment, which is a slap in the face of the female Marines who participated in the study. Yeah, I they were uh, thrilled about that. Yeah, analysis. and I talked to yeah talked to a few of them. They were not they're not that thrilled. <laughs> um, but another thing that they found also was that the injury rates were astronomically higher. Um, again, because there's so much you're carrying so much weight, so things like pelvic stress fractures were um, you know an order of like 700% greater risk. Right. Um, and so the other thing the Marines said is, Hey, you're basically, if, if you do this, like you're, you're going to deprive us of our best female Marines. Cause they're not going to be a substantial number. Won't serve a full 20 years because the injury rate is just that much higher. Um, but the, uh, the Obama administration didn't listen and, uh, overruled the Marine Corps. And, um, it was telling that usually when you have a monumental policy change like that, you'll have, the secretary of defense announcing the policy and it'll appear with the chairman of the joint chiefs or all of the joint chiefs. And, and none of them went out with um, secretary Ash Carter when he made the announcement, which is a pretty clear sign that they were not on board. Um, and in fact, they weren't. So, uh, okay. So they won't speak to the media, but if you don't see them at these PR junkets, uh, that's it's a, a little sign. bit subtle Pentagon messaging at times. Yeah. <sighs> Just like it when people are blunt. Okay. I know, I know. <laughs> so, Climate change. It was no secret the Obama administration was very into being green. And you write that that affected the military. How so? Yeah. Uh, so there, there are two ways. So one, again, time, resources, not always fungible. Um, and they were, and it's not just the idea of, hey, climate change exists. or, or it, was, it was the idea that the military should be kind of harnessed to fight climate change um, rather than, say, fighting ISIS. Um, and... One interesting, mentioning those two uh, two factors, Ben Rhodes, who was in uh, Obama's administration at one point in 2015, refused to say that ISIS was a greater threat to Americans than climate change. And that was December 28th, 2015. Well, I mean, and December 29th, 2015, the San Bernardino ISIS shooting happened. It's just interesting juxtaposition of... of uh, but the weird thing is, in retrospect, Rhodes almost sounds reasonable that he wasn't comparing it to World War II. Right, and like, I know, We're right? all going to go in 12 years. Compar so. Right, exactly. It wasn't... Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's how far the 2020 window shifted, for sure. Um, but yeah, so the Navy... Um, started at something called Task Force Climate Change. And that was, so Ray Mabus, who was the Secretary of the Navy for all eight years during the Obama administration, um, was an environmental activist before he became Secretary of the Navy. So he kind of just imported that mindset in there. So they were uh, trying to run ships on biofuels made from chicken grease and algae, and they called it the Great Green Fleet. And they invested this whole host of money into basically trying to make green or converting battleships to run on green fuel 
Well, the ships themselves are falling into disrepair. So I spoke to a, a three-star admiral who was actually forced out for disagreeing with Mavis towards the end of um, Obama's second term. And, uh, you know, he said, our, you know, he was so worried about green fuel. But meanwhile, the ships that are supposed to be running them are falling apart at the pier. This, you know, this makes no sense. And you know, the book's kind of littered with with small examples of the prioritization of that versus the things that the military should be doing, which is simply preparing to fight and win wars against the nation's adversaries. Right. And also, I mean, I know the Heritage Index of Military Strength shows that it's not like we're in such a great position that we have Ex- time and money to exactly. spend on yeah, like, you yeah. know, climate change. Like, I, I mean, that yeah. would be a different argument. Right. Exactly. And so I cited the, uh, the Heritage report in my book because you know, we're at the smallest level since World War One, and, and you know, in some parts of the force. And yet we're spending billions and billions of dollars on these, you know, green initiatives that in the grand scheme of things, even if your goal is to, to reduce carbon emissions are, are not even a drop in the ocean. You, you think China and, you know, Russia and all these other countries are focusing their defense dollars on, uh, you know, I mean, buying carbon credits. <laughs> like. Yeah. Well, that would be awesome if they did. Right. Uh, I, mean, I wish they would. So you've mentioned this several times, and it sort of ran throughout uh, the book, Stand Down, um, the tension between the political appointees and the military. And, I mean, I know you only served during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering, do you have a historical perspective? Because I would assume that generally there's some tension. Right. Well, I think but was it sort of at an unprecedented level? So that's something that I, I tried to go out of my way to find, um, because— I think there always will be some disagreement about some things. Um, you know, he, every human beings always disagree, and um, sometimes political motives are, can be different than, you know, military motives. So when I, I spoke to a lot of those uh, generals and admirals, that was a question I asked. I said, you know, how did things shift from 2000 to 2008 to the 2009 to 2017 era? And they said the difference was that they just simply weren't listened to. And, uh, Basically, the the Obama administration's political ideologues knew what they wanted to achieve, and they weren't really interested in hearing the military. I mean, you could push back, but only to a point, and that's what they said. So I asked asked an admiral whether or not Ray Mabus, who had been Secretary of the Navy, um, had been receptive to his and his peers' uh, professional judgment. And he said—he just laughed, and he said, no, he had no use for us unless we said, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full. And that kind of sums it up. Okay, so we're not the only nation where political correctness and the military are intersecting. You talk about Australia, the UK, I think mm-hmm. some others. What's going on in other countries, and is there stuff that we should sort of see as a warning sign? I'm glad you raised that point because I pointed to specific examples in the UK and Australia to kind of just say, like, hey, this is where this leads. And in a lot of ways, they're, the PC culture that you see in Europe and in the UK, especially in Australia, is 10 years ahead of us, just culturally speaking, in general. Um, but so the UK um, has removed man from all of their titles because uh, so they no longer have infantrymen, they have infantiers. And they spent <laughs> all this time um, updating all of their manuals, removing the term man from all of them and uh, revamping all of their, uh, you know, like revamping their buildings. And wow. And then, you know, they have instructions on uh, you can get trouble for improper pronoun use and, you know, not being sensitive to people's pronouns. And. So, and does that go? Do they have p- people who are identifying as like non-binary in the military in these countries yet? Or are we just talking he and she? Uh, we're talking, you know, kind of across the the whole. Okay, because I know there's the like spectrum Z of, of yeah, yeah. There are there are uh, 
an ever-increasing number of pronouns these days. Is there anything besides the pronouns we're so, seeing? Yeah, this, no, so, I mean, there's that cultural, um, you know, those cultural issues, but, or, yeah. But then they also have adopted kind of the same, the same policies and a really, at a time when they're, you know, the militaries are also falling into some of the disrepair and uh, the state that ours is. And so you, you look at kind of the major powers of the Western world and what are, what are we focusing on? We're making sure that we're sensitive about pronoun use. We're making sure that we move the word man. We, you know, we're making sure that we're not too gendered apparently. And meanwhile, China's not doing that. There was a study out the other uh, last week about how China now is the most dominant power in the Pacific. And if we got in a war with China, they would, uh, they would have decisive advantage, at least in the Pacific and in the near term. And what were we doing while they, we lost that advantage over the last eight years? Well, you know, take a look at the Obama years. That's what they were focused on. They weren't focused on uh, doing what they needed to do to make sure that we keep the nation safe. A lot of these changes occurred during the Obama administration, as you've stated. Sure. Um, has the Trump administration been rolling some of them back, some any of them, them back? Yeah. What mm-hmm. and is okay if it's just some of them? Is there more room for improvement or? Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, and the last chapter of my book sets out a bunch of things that they can do to improve, and um, you know, ranging from small things like well, not not small things, but things like um, bringing the VA Accountability Act to the Pentagon. So the VA Accountability Act allowed the Veterans Administration to. Um, fire based low performing workers, essentially like, you know, people working in the VA who just bureaucrats were failing. Um, the Pentagon needs that in part because there is a very, very strong entrenched bureaucracy in the Pentagon. And a lot of them are on board with some of these social justice changes and they're, they're not shy about, you know, pushing back on things. So for uh, a three star told me an example of how a, a civilian bureaucrat literally told him that he, no, I'm not going to do what you said to do. And he said, because I'm going to be here in two years and you won't. Um, and so we need to be able to to get rid of of kind of those toxic types. So that's one. The other second thing I would do is return instruction at the military academies to military um, instructors. And I think that prevents just the, the seep of what you see in the intellectual academic culture from just, you know, all of kind of the progressive craziness that you can see at major universities from just seeping right into the military academies the way they have. Um, so that would be the second. And then the third thing is I would follow the Marine Corps study on infantry units, but just to, to give the Trump administration credit for one thing that they did do well, and they took a lot of flack for it, but the, was the, the transgender policy. And it, uh, it was portrayed as if, you know, Trump one day just woke up and tweeted about it. And that was, and everyone was caught off guard in, I mean, the timing, I think they were definitely caught off guard and the, the method, but the actual policy that they enacted began as part of a review ordered by General Mattis when he first became Secretary of Defense. And he said, um, you basically talked to the, the members of the Joint Chiefs, and they asked him for a two-year delay in the Obama administration's policy. And he said, well, you know, why do you need a delay? Weren't you consulted when this was first passed? And, and they said, no. And so then he, he created a working group to kind of, or a review group to, to see what kind of changes needed to be made. So Trump's announcement was portrayed as if the military was just totally disagreeing with Trump on this. But in reality, um, he may have uh, kind of jumped the gun in terms of announcement, but it was, it was actually a Pentagon-issued uh, review. And the policy that they settled on allows people to be open about who they are, but requires them to serve according to their biological sex. 
Is there anything else you wished I had asked you about? Well, where to find the book? It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, you find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or anywhere else that uh, you normally find books. And the book's called Stand Down. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, James. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we will leave it there for today. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us feedback. We will see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.